0: All on digital media, iTunes Podcast, Smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry.
1: Hello
2: and welcome to this week's edition of Outlook, being recorded on Wednesday the 26th of April. And uh, in this week's programme, we'll be having a look at Spawn Street, the old quarter of Coventry. Uh, Bill talks about the origins of uh, snooker, very topical, now it's at the uh, Crucible in Sheffield. We've talked about words before, but this week it goes into etymology, the origin of words a little bit more. Uh, Ali's going to tell us a little story about dream for a queen and of course uh, it will not be complete this programme with something about the coronation coming up shortly and we're talking to, or we're reading an article about a lady who doesn't profess to be a good cook but tried her hand at the coronation omelette and we'll finish the programme uh, with a little bit of poetry uh, from William Wordsworth but of course before all that uh, we've got uh, news from here at the centre sport and your post bag but before we start before, before we go into the main programme it's the news with a new reader which I'm pleased to welcome Christine Kennel uh, and myself
0: Outlook News
3: The Coventry School has been recognised for its outstanding careers work The Westwood Academy has been awarded the National Quality in Careers Standard for the guidance it gives to school leavers It's the second time in six years the school has been given the gong. The award itself is given to schools who demonstrate the importance they place on careers and show they support students in making decisions about their life after full-time education. The Westwood Academy says it continually works to improve the chances of opportunities afforded to all of its students. It says it recognises the importance of preparing youngsters for their future careers. Schools have a statutory duty to secure independent careers guidance for pupils from year eight onwards. But the government recommends all schools should work towards hitting the quality and careers standard. The school says it offers a wide range of activities to introduce students to the world of work and help them make decisions about life after school. Opportunities include work experience for all pupils, an annual careers fair, visits to universities, assemblies delivered by employers and clear links between curriculum subjects and the world of work.
2: Boozing in public, begging and drugs are still blighting areas of Coventry, despite powers being in place to crack down on these activities. Street drinking, drug taking and drug, uh, de- uh, drug dealing are the norm in Hillfields Village Square, according to War Councillor David Welsh. Councillor Welsh claims the behaviour is tolerated by all agencies to a degree, while those living there have to see it every day. People drink all day on the street, they queue up for their drugs, they take their drugs, they go to the toilet behind the community centre, which is very near Sydney Slinger's Primary School, and then they carry on, he said. He and other councillors told of the daily antisocial behaviour they see in the area of the city at a scrutiny board meeting this week. They were critical of how special powers brought in to deal with undesirable activities almost a decade ago are being used by the council and police. Since 2014, Coventry has had five public space protection orders put in to ban certain activities from specific areas. Some things, such as driving untaxed and uninsured cars, are banned citywide. while in hillfields drug-taking, drug-dealing and alcohol misuse are not allowed. But while PSPOs by law can be enforced with immediate fines, in Coventry a decision was made to tackle underlying behaviours, the meeting heard. Rule breakers get breach notices, which can lead to fines or court summons, but more often than not only result in the person's details being taken and a referral to support agencies. Coventry Council has finite resources which make enforcement of the powers challenging, and Community Safety Officer Liam Nagel uh, said just eight council are enfor- there are only eight council enforcement officers. Two more are expected to join, but c- can be used use the powers alongside the police. And only two are usually in the city centre. These officers, who work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. seven days a week, also have to patrol hotspot areas for fly tipping, which are also in areas not covered by specific PSPOs such as fosal but Coventry councillors weren't happy with the explanations and called for more to be done to reassure the people they represent. Councillor Naheem Akbar, uh, chair of the scrutiny board, said, this is a joke now that we've got something in place, we don't have the resources to enforce it.
3: National Express has ordered 170 new fully electric buses as the company continues to move towards having an all-electric West Midlands fleet by 2030. In November, Coventry City Council said that it was aiming to become the first all-electric bus city in the UK. The new order is part of a £150 million investment which will see 300 new electric buses serving routes across Coventry and the West Midlands. This follows a previous order of 130 of the vehicles which joined the fleet in Coventry. This is part of a £140 million project to make Coventry all-electric by 2025. In 2020, National Express West Midlands launched an initial 29 fully electric buses into service on routes across Coventry, Birmingham and Solihull and now with a total 329 of these vehicles in operation the bus operator is expected to save nearly 22,000 tonnes of carbon from going out into the atmosphere every year. Tom Stable's CEO, National Express UK and Germany, said, This latest move with Alexander Dennis is our biggest new vehicle order to date. Replacing another 170 of our diesel buses with electric is a huge step for us, delivering on our commitment to have a completely zero-emission bus fleet in the UK by 2030. These clean, green, UK-built double-decker Double-decker buses are popular with our customers. As a result, they're not only more economical to run, but they will boost passenger growth by getting more people to ditch their cars for the bus. And of course, they do their bit to help tackle the climate and clean air emergency. National Express West Midlands has recently extended the £2 single ticket offer for another three months, so our new and existing customers can relax, knowing that they're saving money and the planet by using our quieter, smoother, more comfortable buses.
2: Coventry City Council has responded after rejecting a King's Coronation Street party in Coventry. Earlson cancelled plans to throw the High Street Coronation Party as the council turned down its application to close the road. The council said the application was initially accepted, but was later declined after residents objected to the roads being shut a week after the Earlson Festival. The council had received two official objections from residents. A survey of Earlson itself found 15 people objected to the closure. The council spokesman said the application for this street party was initially accepted but was reassessed and declined a few days later due to residents' objections. Two official objections were received by Coventry City Council from residents who would be directly affected by the road closures. Separately, the applicant carried out their own survey with residents and received 15 objections. These objections were based on the prospect of road closure two weekends in a row, and we are obliged to take these into account. All applications follow an internal approvals process, which includes oversight from several service areas. Applications are also shared with ward councillors for consultation when required. It was not an easy decision to make, but we felt this was a decision we had to make following the objections to the application. There are a number of open public events happening in Coventry to celebrate the coronation. and We encourage all residents to have a look at our website, which is at, at www.coventry.gov.uk slash coronation, to find out the different ways in which you can celebrate this momentous event. Organisers said they, will be, they will, would look at bringing back a street market with several stalls to bring a boost to local businesses. Business owner Kieran Knights said the group wanted to bring a bit of life back to the area. Mr. Knights of the Earlson Cobbler said the area had lost its banks and some individual shops. He told the BBC it's about bringing the local community together and boosting the local economy. Because these guys are struggling at the moment. It's a tough gig.
3: A Coventry man's plans to open a new post office in Charlesmoor have received support from Coventry South MP Zara Sultana. The Daventry Road Budjans owner, Kathik Varatharajan, has applied to open a post office at his store and a petition appealing for this to become a reality has been signed by over 1,250 people. Coventrians living in Charlesmore have been calling for a new post office in the area following the closure of the one on Daventry Road last May. Earlier this week, Ms Sultana presented the petition to Parliament urging the House of Commons to support a new post office in Charlesmore. Residents feel the next nearest post office service is often overcrowded and too far away, making it inaccessible for those with mobility issues. Mr Varatharajan, who started the petition, said, Local people were really affected when the old Daventry Road post office closed. Now they have to travel much further to find the nearest post office and often have to wait in long queues to be seen. I'm hopeful that now this petition has been presented to Parliament, my application for a post office will be approved.
2: A Homes Meal Service believes it can step up to the plate. With the recent decision by Warwickshire County Council to axe the Meals on Wheels service, Russell Mundell of Wiltshire Farm Foods believes the firm can offer a viable alternative. Wiltshire Farm Foods has been delivering frozen, ready-made meals to customers within the county for over 30 years. They currently offer delivery service into the area using DBS checked drivers three times a week. Mr Vandell said meals are simple to cook and can be eaten at a time that suits. For those who are being cared for, meal planning is essential and short cooking times can also assist busy carers. With over 330 meals to choose from, with lots of choice for different diets and appetites, there is a meal to suit everyone's palate. It is simple to order with no contact contract to worry about. You can order when you wish to, by phone, online or with your friendly local driver. Our customers are at the heart of everything we do, from crafting recipes with care to going an extra mile when it comes to customer service. You can depend on us for more than just your meals. Your friendly local team will take the time to get to know you and your driver will even pop your meals away in your freezer for you if you wish. Whilst Wiltshire Farm Foods is not a direct replacement for the Meals on Wheels service, it is a viable alternative. It may not suit everyone's circumstances, but what harm is there in in storing a couple of frozen meals in the freezer as backup? If you're interested in this service from Wiltshire Farm Foods, telephone number is 01543 432 888 to either order or find out more about the service.
3: Hundreds of patient appointments were cancelled at the University Hospital Coventry in Warwickshire during the doctor's strike. A total of 405 people, both inpatient and outpatients, were hit by the four-day walkout. The impact of the industrial action has been revealed by the NHS. UHCW has pledged to reschedule the appointments of all those affected as soon as possible. According to the figures, outpatient appointments were hit hardest, with 162 cancelled. And for inpatient appointments, such as surgery, there were 143 cancellations. A spokesman for University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust said... While thorough planning helped to minimise the impact on planned care, there were some procedures and appointments that needed to be postponed to ensure we could focus on continuing to provide safe, urgent and emergency care. The impact of those delays on patients is not lost on our hard-working teams, and we would like to thank all those patients whose appointments were affected for their understanding. We're working hard to reschedule all those appointments to ensure affected patients can access care as quickly as possible. Coventry Council
2: spent over £125,000 of taxpayers' cash on its failed levelling up fund bid. The City Council applied for almost £58 million from the levelling up fund's second round and as part of this, spent more than 125000 on consultants to help put the bid together. Money, it says, was given to it specially as extra funding rather than being found from its regular budget. But, to the anger of council leaders, it was revealed earlier this year that it had missed out on any levelling up fund cash. An investigation carried out by the Northern Agenda Politics Newsletter revealed that authorities spent as much as £1.3 million each on outside experts to improve their bids for the regeneration cash. Coventry paid out £125,854 on consultant fees for the bid which which would have been spent on projects including improving dispatched areas including hillfields and foesville and creating a new cultural gateway into the city centre. Coventry City Council said that almost all the money it spent on consultants had been given to it by the government. Local authorities deemed to be most in need of levelling up funding were awarded a one-off payment of £125,000 capacity funding in order to help support their bids. A spokesman for Coventry City Council said the criteria for levelling up bids state that you must bid for the funding. These are the national rules all local authorities must work to. This extra ask is recognised by the fact that Coventry received £125,000 in government funding, specifically for the development of our bids. This means the charge incurred by the Council in paying for this additional support was cost neutral to us.
3: Landmarks in Coventry City Centre will be lit up in red, white and blue for the coronation next month. Structures and footpaths will be bathed in patriotic colours overnight to celebrate the crowning of King Charles III and Queen Consort Camilla. The areas will light up in the shades from sunset to sunrise over the bank holiday weekend from Saturday May the 6th to Monday May the 8th, the council said. Christchurch Spire, the Whittle Arch, the footpath on Greyfriars Green, Broadgate and the precinct water features are all set to be lit in the colours. These areas put on a similar eye-catching display during the Queen's Platinum Jubilee last year. News of the lighting plans come as the city prepares to celebrate the coronation. A big screen will go up in Broadgate to broadcast the coronation service and procession on Saturday, May the 6th. The next day, two free parties for city residents will be held in the city centre and at Coombe Country Park. That day we'll also see the Coronation Concert broadcast from the grounds of Windsor Castle at 8 o'clock in the evening. The gig will include dazzling light displays at iconic locations in the UK as part of a Lighting Up the Nation feature. And on Monday, May the 8th, People across the UK are encouraged to help out in their communities as part of the Big Help Out. A popular
2: event aimed at encouraging older people to socialise through reminiscence will host a special one-off event with bona fide Coventry City legend Oggy. Sporting Memories presents an evening with Steve O'Gru... I'll get it right in a minute.
4: <laughs>
2: you all know who I mean, don't you? Steve, Steve Ogrizovich, uh, where the former FA Cup winning Skies Blues, who's the former Skies Blue winning goalkeeper. The special event will be at the, uh, the guest of Alan Higgs Centre at 6pm today, Wednesday. The get-togethers are usually held on the final Friday afternoon of the month. Sporting Memories is an opportunity for the older generation to socialise and meet up with friends, reminiscing about their lives in Coventry via the lens of sport. Run by CV Life's Coventry Moves Project, the events are compared by hometown athletics legend David Moorcroft. The events are informal, with Dave asking and fielding questions from guests and attendees, who usually sit around scattered tables sipping tea and coffee. Though so on this occasion a slap-up meal is on offer with people attend, for people attending, the informal atmosphere will be retained with Oggy taking questions in a con- conversational manner. Being record appearance uh, holder for Coventry, an FA Cup winner, and, until Ben Wilson's equaliser against Blackburn Rovers recently, the last goalie to store for Sky Blues, Oggy is certain to be full of anecdotes and memories which will make all sports fans smile. Jade Woodward, Community Coordinator for CV Live, said, Sporting memories is a really popular event which helps get the older generation out and about. Socialising, chatting, and generally having fun through reminiscing about, about sport. We've had some fantastic guests in recent months, including former Coventry defender Dave Bussett, BBC CWR reporter Clive Eakin, and legendary BBC swimming commentator Hamilton Bland. We've been trying to get Steve Grzyzewicz involved for a while but due to his commitments elsewhere we struggled to pin him down for our usual daytime slot. Thankfully we've managed to book him for an evening event and this allowed us to turn it into a more of an evening with occasion with a meal and some drinks. The event takes place today, Wednesday the 26th at the Allen Centre and the top tickets were only £7.00. Uh, If you want to know more about what went on, uh, you can email jwoodward at cvlife.co.uk and she will tell you more.
0: Outlook News
2: So uh, Christine Kennel, uh, who just first you just heard, uh, came to fill the gap because Elaine unfortunately is on a, a commitment uh, which she thought she'd be uh, away from by two o'clock, but it hasn't been. Uh, Elaine's come along uh, really to see what we're doing. Christine has come. I begs, uh, Christine has just come along to see what we're doing to see if she can volunteer for us. and she was thrown right in the deep end with the news. And thank you, Christine. Hopefully you will hear her voice a little more, but we've got to persuade her that we're the right people to for her to volunteer for. So, uh, thanks to her and, and to me, of course, for the daily news. Uh, <laughs> she should have been doing it, but she's ill. Uh, so we're all at sixes and sevens eight. But here, someone not at sixes and sevens. Before I introduce him, thank you, Hugh. Uh, Sunrise is five forty-seven. Sunset at eight twenty-three.
1: Hugh, over to you. Thank you very <laughs> much. Yes, I'm here. I, I'm here for all all matters to do with support and help. Um, well, hello, everybody. Um, Now, those of you who keep up to date with our Facebook page will be aware, sadly, that we'll be losing Guy in about a month's time. He has decided finally to retire properly. I will pay proper tribute to him when the time comes, but suffice it to say for the moment that he's been absolutely brilliant these last five years and will leave a big hole to fill. Now, the process of trying to fill that hole has already begun. I have advertised the transport coordinator role on Facebook and through the job shop and job finder websites. Um, If you know of anyone who's looking for a part-time position... um, please do ask them to contact me and or have a look at our Facebook page. And the contact number, you should probably all know it off by heart by right now, is 024-7671-7522. That's a voluntary position for you already. No, no, it's a paid, it's a paid position. position. Paid are. position, yeah. yes, a proper job. Um, now, speaking of fond farewells, but of an altogether different nature, um, we attended the funeral of dear Katie Dickey last Monday afternoon, Joe's mm-hmm. mum. Now, in as much as these things can be, it was a wonderful send-off with all the music chosen by Katie herself and moving and affectionate tributes from her family and the pastor of the Lutheran congregation that worship, worships at the Chapel of Unity in Coventry Cathedral. Katie herself was an early and highly active member of the con- congregation. Uh, Joe will be back in the office next week. It was a terrific event, you know, and um, uh, we were very privileged to have been there. Now, from farewells to hellos. Our new Renault minibus is I now it, fully liveried. Oh, yes, all, all p- painted up with yeah. everything you need to lovely, that, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, it yeah. it's fully liveried on the road, and it really does look splendid. Um, it's fully accessible with low steps and the capacity to take a wheelchair. Um, I'm very pleased with it, and I hope you will all enjoy using it. Our plan now, as I mentioned previously, is to sell off the Ford and then find a replacement for the older Renault. So, all change on the bus front. Now, last Sunday, I went along to the Gurdwara Guru Nanak Parkash in Harnal Lane, which was celebrating Vaisakhi, the spring harvest. Uh, and they were doing that with a Naga Kirtan, in which the holy scripture, Guru Granth Sahib, is processed on a float, processed rather, on a float around the streets. Uh, there were thousands of people watching and taking part And it was a privilege to be a part of it myself I was invited by the Gurdwara as they have made a generous donation to the charity of £501 um, For which very many thanks And I think um, we've made some good connections there as well Which will be following up over the next few months I've um, had in a good number of applications for the new Outreach and Service Development Officer roles that will form part of a project that we've won funding for from the City Council and Integrated Care Board. Um, The applications are now closed and uh, we're interviewing next week and looking at the quality of applications that we have, and we have a good number, I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to appoint. Um, So I'll let you know about that in due course. Um, as part of that project I've been attending a number of meetings at the City Council um, hooking up with other charities and other agencies in the city and making some great contacts that will really help us deliver more and better things for the people of Coventry I really am very excited by it all Uh, Now, a quick reminder about the Ilsen Festival, which comes up next week. Uh, That's the 1st of May, so if you're lucky, you'll have got this in the post um, before then. Uh, Monday, the 1st of May, the bank holiday. the charity shop will be going large in the car park, as it is wont to do. Um, but with the addition this to weather, <laughs> subject to weather, well, we have the tents. We yeah. have tents. Excellent. Um excellent. Uh, and if, there's, if it's truly awful weather, we also have a bit of inside, so uh, that'll be fine too. Uh, the tents will still be up. Uh, but we also have the addition, uh, this time, um, as we did last year, of the allotment uh, group, uh, who uh, will be selling off... Um, tremendous quality pr- plants i mean they, they produce such beautiful beautiful plants uh so those will be available as well uh that money goes directly to the um allotment club to support uh, to support their work throughout the rest of the year um so do come along support the charity shop support the allotment club uh there will be a craft table as well so you can c- support the craft club too come along and support everybody why not um there will be a lot of people around that day, hopefully, um, even even if the weather's a bit a bit naff. Actually, mm. uh, you know, the Wirralston Festival uh, uh, brings does generate interest. Doesn't does it, a yeah. lot mm. of yeah, and on a really good day, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people come into Wirralston. So um, definitely time to pick up a bargain or two. So I think that's it for the moment. Those of you who have signed up for the Coronation Tea and want the bus, um, Guy will be in contact to let you know your pickup time at some point in the next uh number of days. Uh aside from that, if you need anything, please do call us on the number. Shall I say it again, two four, seven six, seven one, seven five two two and as ever we will do our best to help. And I presume you'll close both bank holidays. Oh yes, yeah. it was, uh, come, come May, we've got three yes. bank holidays. Of course yeah. yes. we well, have yes. one at the end. We've got one at the end, so we've got, uh, All those yes. three you'll for. All those three we're closed for, yeah. so, uh, yes, yeah. so the 1st of May, the 8th of May, and the uh, 29th of yeah. May, I think it Good. is, Yeah. Excellent, thank you Hugh. Thank, thank you. We'll see you next week. You will.
2: Next, as usual, of course, it's Sarah with your sports report for this week.
0: Outlook Sport.
5: Hello there, folks. It's Silly Sarah with Sport. Now, the end is getting near. We're near the end. The end of the football season, that is. Okay, stop jumping up and down with joy. Yeah, I can see you all in my head. All jumping up and down, getting the bunting and the flags out. Anyway we're now really at the pinch point in all of the leagues. Now Coventry entertained Reading at home and before the match there was a lot of hype and talk about can we make the playoffs for the Premier League because at that stage we were in 7th position. Now before I say the result, Victor Jokeres had an absolute nightmare of a day He was kept getting past balls near the box And the commentator said Oh and he's going to score He's put it over He's put it left He's put it right In fact I think he put it everywhere pretty much Apart from between the goalposts." Anyway Fortunately Matt Godden and Gustavo Hamer did score, one in each half. But Reading had the audacity to score one as well, near the beginning of the second half. And so that led to a very tense final 20 minutes. But that's how it remained. Two goals to one to City. And at the end of the match, thanks to results elsewhere, particularly Millwall getting beaten. It's a good day when the thugs get beaten. um, We were in fifth place, knowing that Blackburn played later, and our close rivals, also West Brom, played on Sunday. However, those results went our way as well, and we are still fifth. But it's not now we need to be fifth. It's in two, after the s- two matches, because we're playing Birmingham at home on Saturday and then Middlesbrough away on the final Monday of the season. Oh, I just feel we're going to come seventh. Hey-ho. Now, changing the shape of the ball, but staying in a championship league... Coventry Rugby Club played their final home match of their superb season and they rounded it off with a 38 points to 24 victory beating Nottingham Maidens. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Beating Maidens. Well, you know what I mean. Anyway, they won. But I'm afraid going back to the round ball... It was a bad day for Leamington. They travelled up north to Fylde, knowing that only a victory would do. So precarious is their position. Well, they did score one goal, but sadly Fylde scored as well, several times. And I'm afraid the final score there was 5-1. So it does look as if Leamington will be in a lower league next season. But I'll bring you up to date next week on all of the where people are, all you lucky people. Now, meanwhile, Nuneaton, who are secure in their playoff place from the Southern Premier League, they entertain St Ives at home. Now coming off the back of a 3-0 defeat to Tamworth midweek you know people thinking oh are well, they going off the boil a bit but no they beat St Ives 3-0 and they have their playoff match to go up the first of possibly two if they beat this one against Leyton on Wednesday the 26th just as a footnote, I did love the way it said, cash only on the turnstiles, please. None of this go online, get your ticket from Ticketmaster or one of the sales agents. Nope, cash on the turnstile. And meanwhile, Stratford, who are who are safe but ain't going to go up, travel to Nottingham to trade back to play Basford United. And they won 2-0 It's amazing, they were so much rooted in the relegation zone And now they just can't stop winning Well actually they've got to stop Because it's the end of the season now for Stratford Anyway you know what I mean Now Coventry Sphinx had a celebration match Well it was a serious match but it was a real celebration for them because they have won their United Counties Midlands League and to cap that they won 7-0 and even better than that Rugby Town look as if they're going to finish probably second so they're guaranteed to be in the playoffs and with a bit of luck they could get promotion as well. However, sadly on Sunday, the already relegated country united women lost their final match at home 4-0 to Southampton. Now, as you might have seen on the news, Sunday saw the staging of the London Marathon, Back to its April slot for the first time since the pandemic. First of all, big congratulations to Kelvin Kiptum of Kenya, who won the men's race, and Sifan Husan of Holland, who won the women's. Just a rather nice couple of footnotes about Sylphon. Firstly, it was her first ever marathon, and the first time she competitively run that far. And secondly, she went to Holland as a refugee, aged 15. So, well done, Sylph, and I'm sure we'll be seeing far more of you. Now, I've taken part in London six times. Note I say taken part. I don't say run, I don't say walked. I do, used to do a bit of both. And I've put together sort of light-hearted top ten points as you go round the course. Firstly all roads to Greenwich Park and I assume Blackheath the other start close at 8am So you basically have to be there by 8 unless you can walk or are lucky enough to be able to go by tube So basically a small village erupts or certainly a small village fate You have hot drink stalls, carbo rich food stalls You have loos, you have the articulated lorries ready to collect your kit. You have weather shelters for rain or heat. You have first aid. It is an amazing look. Secondly, the loo queue really is a thing of wonder. You could be standing behind a serious runner in their emblazoned kit kit. Vest and shorts. And behind you, you could start chatting to Mickey Mouse. Where else but London Marathon. Thirdly, now what you don't know is that the first few miles from Greenwich are very much downhill because Greenwich Park is really probably one of the highest points of London. Unlike Blackheath, where after about 200 metres from the start, you're faced with a set of about 10 closely packed speed humps. And on each speed hump is a willing volunteer standing there with a notice saying, Speed hump. Now, my reckoning is, if you can see the notice that they're holding, you can probably see the yellow painted speed humps. But what do I know? Now, fourthly, probably one of the steepest inclines on the course is the ascent to Tower Bridge. It looks so flat on the television, but it isn't. It is actually a real pull-up. But funnily enough, the descent is nowhere near as marked. Now, five Coming off Tower Bridge, slower runners try very hard not to look down or you see those ahead of you and not just a little bit ahead of you either because, number six, if you turned left off Tower Bridge you'd only have about three or four miles to the finish but the pesky organisers send you on a course to the right which means you have about another 13. Hmm, it'd be so nice to be able to jump down and join those nine miles ahead of you. Hey-ho, I know it's not the winning, it's the taking part. Now, number seven, a bit personal this one. Canary Wharf, which you get to at about 18 miles has really changed over the years i first took part in the marathon in 1995 um in those days canary wolf just resembled a tarmac nothingness a bit like an airport you know the the airfield not the terminal building I've run it shortly after there'd been bombings by the IRA and some of the offices had been blown out and now it is just such a cosmopolitan area it's hard to remember the old tarmac airfields now 8 overall it is a very twisty turny course with some quite narrow pinch points I'm thinking here of the entry to the, to the tower Not Tower Bridge this time, the tower And also the exit actually I wouldn't like to be involved in that When you've got the masses Or when if you're following a guy carrying a ten foot ladder But whatever floats your boat Now nine after the tower, by contrast, is about two and a half three miles, pretty straight running along the road known as the embankment, unless you are a slow runner and I'm talking about, for instance, me the first time I competed when I was a six hour runner, and they push you onto the little front footpath just down. Uh, right down by the river, which is kind of okay provided you your vision and everything's good enough to dodge all of the bollards and the railings and the people walking the dogs etc number ten it is so funny because the number of people you see when they see Big Ben and then you turn right up, up Birdcage walk. They begin to put on their sprint for the camera at the end. Little do they know they have at least another half mile along Birdcage walk before you turn right again in front of Buck House, sorry Buckingham Palace, and you then have about a four-five hundred meter sprint up the Mall. Then you finish. And you have to try and find your articulated lorry with your kit on and hope it's arrived. And a small and finally, one of the best tips that I was ever given about taking kit to the marathon was make sure you pack a pair of sandals in your kit bag for when you're finished. And I assure you, the state of your feet after pounding the streets for 26 odd miles you are very glad of sandals and that was your sport
2: thanks Sarah sports report Uh, now over to Dave with your postbag
6: this
7: is postbag
0: join in the discussion Hello and welcome
4: to your postbag. I'm recording it a bit early as Graham is taking me to Southport, Chester, and then the Wirral, where we are celebrating his 50th birthday with his musical friends. Talking about celebrations, here's a piece from Julia entitled, It's Ramadan, Here Comes the Bunny. My niece Lucy has explained all about Easter, Ramadan and Passover. We were celebrating Easter because we're a bit Christian, but my Muslim friends celebrate Ramadan, and my Jewish cousins have a Passover instead. I don't know which ones worship chocolate bunnies. I expect it must be the Muslims. Anyway, my friend John doesn't celebrate anything because he's a godless heathen. That's why he didn't get a chocolate bunny. This year all the religions had their holy days at the same time. Lucy said this only happens once every 30 years. It must be very confusing for God when this happens. He won't know which hat to wear when he gets up on Easter day. I expect they all have chocolate bunnies. I am confused but had a lovely roast dinner with my family. We didn't do anything special but it was nice seeing everybody. My friend John just got drunk and got arrested. Julia. Thank you, Julia. There is a time every number of years when Eid, Diwali and Christmas fall within a short space of each other. When this happened, the late, much-loved Banu Dabi had parties that celebrated all three festivals. I thought this was a lovely idea. And I went to two of them, and the last one we played Pass the Parcel and did Bangra dancing. And to you, if you are a Muslim listener, I hope you've had a happy Eid. Graham talks about a round former burger bar in the lower precinct that was saved from demolition by English Heritage, who cited it as a fine example of the Festival of Britain another celebration. First, though, Graham corrects the mistake he made regarding a radio station.
0: First of all, I would like to correct something I said with my uh, radio piece um, a few weeks back, um, as you hear this. <laughs> um, I said that Justin Dealing is on the Eastern Counties region radio on a Friday night. He's not. He's on a Saturday night. Problem is, I was so rushed There was such a lot of information I wanted to get out in such a short space of time that I needed to panic mode a little bit, so I just thought I'd correct that. But to move on, it was interesting to hear the item about Coventry Precinct, and notably the Round Cafe in the lower precinct. I remember that place well, uh, in my age away, went in there. And the arguments I've heard over the years as to whether that place revolved or whether it didn't the thing is, it opened around the time that um, a revolving re- restaurant, I think it was a post office tower or something like that down London, the top floor was a restaurant which revolved. And I think people assumed, they, could, they relate to that and assumed that the round cafe in the other precinct revolved. But it didn't. It was impossible because it's a concrete structure. And... Um, even though it's been proven that it, uh, it didn't revolve, um, I still hear people swear that it did. Uh, but no, it didn't, and I'm glad it didn't. Can you imagine the problem for a visually impaired people, person? Um, how would you find a way in for a start? And when you're in there, how do you find your way out if the thing's going around? Um, it wouldn't suit me at all, actually. But no, it most certainly never revolved.
4: Well, there's a big celebration coming up, the coronation of King Charles III. Edwina talks about a white royal ding-dong, as if we haven't been hearing enough about them. <laughs> but this is a different kind of ding-dong.
8: Hi, everybody. Today is another subject, a white royal ding-dong. It is something that is going to be very, very different, especially for King Charles' Coronation. There will be lots of bow-ringers, all practising, and some of them being new students, if you like, learning the skill of ringing bells. When they learn, in about 15 days roughly, they have to practice, practice, practice before they are allowed to go into any church and obviously climb, climb, climb lots of steps up into the uh, ringing chamber. It is a very specialized job they have to have lots of water to drink before they start because it is hard work and they have to know how to stand very steady on their feet before they start can you imagine what it would be like you are holding a rope, and on the end is a bow that weighs one tonne or even two tons. And as the ringing starts, you have to hang on to the rope for dear life. <laughs> you can't imagine it really, but it just takes a lot of timing and skill. There will be 38,000 church bells ringing out the celebration for King Charles. There is only eight church bells that will be silent. This is going to be a really surprising and wonderful feat to do. For such a special occasion. I hope all goes well and it will be a right Royal Ding Dong. Take care everybody. Bye.
4: That's the sound of Orsley church bells, which I recorded at a bell-ringing rehearsal for Outlook. I also asked them to peel the bells to herald the start of the 2012 London Olympics so I could record them for you. By my own little bit of magic, I recorded people ringing bells in the Coventry precinct at exactly the same time. How'd they do that? Uh... Incidentally, former Outlook presenter Sandra Schifini did bell ringing at Bubbenhall Church. Bubbenhall Church, Warwickshire, is a village where Sheila lived until the age of three, and her father was the church organist. Well, thank you for the, your messages this week. Please keep them coming in. Remember that phone number, that's 24 76 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper or any other way you want to communicate with us. Thank you very much and bye for now.
8: This is
5: Outlook.
3: You can contact Postbag.
1: Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at Join in the discussion on Postbag. Right, there's Dave with your Postbag as ever
2: this week. Now, Spon Street has become the centre for ancient Coventry, uh, with more medieval buildings than anywhere else in the city, I guess. And so in this, this is the subject of Margaret's talk this week of the significant buildings around Coventry.
9: The Spon Street Townscape Scheme was launched in 1967 and proposed relocating buildings from Gosford Street, Far Gosford Street, Jordan Well, Much Park Street and parts of Spond Street and Spond End. Eventually, only properties in Much Park Street and western central Spond Street were relocated here. The first building restored in 1969 was number 169, followed by the first relocated building, number 9. Previously, number seven, Much Park Street, which was re-erected in June 1972. The completed street, finished in 1990, contained 12 buildings restored in situ and 10 re-erected from other sites. Spon Street now has one of the most important groupings of medieval timber frame buildings in the country. Numbers one and two, and the last built, stand at the entrance to the street, both formerly stood behind the ring road. Number one dates from the early to mid-15th century and number two from later that century. There were originally four hall houses, open hall to roof and upstairs bedroom, known as wheeldon houses as they were common in East Anglia. These weeldon houses are normally bigger but the Coventry version was adapted to fit into confined spaces. Number 9 was formerly number 7, Much Park Street, and dates from the late 15th to early 16th century. Number 10 is a two-bay hall house and is original to the site. It dates from the early 15th century with a 17th century rear. Number 11 and 12 was built in the mid-14th century and is one of the oldest buildings standing on its original site in Spon Street. It's an incomplete wheeldon house with a central hall and two-storey bays on either side. The left-hand bay was lost when number 10 was built and the right-hand bay is cut short. Number 14 and 15 is known as the Tudor House and dates to the mid to late 15th century. It was formerly the Recruiting Sergeant Inn. One of the highest quality houses in the street, it was originally a four-bayed hall house with oriel windows, a two-bay hall with a fire in the centre. Number 16 was formerly 142 to 43 Spon Street which was dismantled in 1971 and moved here. It represents the last use of timber frame building in Coventry with bricks. Numbers 20 and 21 were formerly 122 to 23 Much Park Street. The double depth building has a mid-15th century front and mid-16th century rear. The front was jetted and the rear an open hall. The building was originally the Green Dragon Inn, made famous by its many references in George Eliot's novel Middlemarch. Numbers 22 and 23 are the Old Windmill, known as Mar Brown's from former publican Anne Brown. This plastered-over timbered building dates from around the 16th century and was originally two buildings. The present entrance originally led into a narrow courtyard that divided them. The left side was a shop until late in the 19th century. The original inn was here in 1824. The other older windmill inn was in Spon Causeway. Still a popular pub, it retains many original fittings. The next building is Rotherham House. Numbers 159 to sixty. Two are a surviving section of a mid-century terrace. The original row was made up of six Coventry coventry-wielden houses, numbers 163 and 164 were formerly numbers 8, 9 and 10, Much Park Street. These are early 15th century three-storey high-status buildings from the former merchant quarters, which originally formed the homes of two merchants. Number 167 dates from the 15th or 16th century and wasn't originally attached to number 168, which dates from the 15th century. The curved, brace, 14th century building of number 169 was the earliest and first building restored in the townscape scheme. It and its neighbour are believed to be the earliest surviving semis in the country. Numbers 171 and 172 are 15th and 16th century and original to the street.
2: From something very old to something very topical snooker. As I'm sure many of you are aware, and possibly avidly watching, the snooker is at the Sheffield Crucible at the moment, despite the terrible invasion and uh, ruination of one of the tables with orange powder by a uh, just-stop-oil protester. Bill, though, is going to talk through the origins and growth of the sport from an article by Brendan Cooper.
7: It is a game of subtlety and mystery. Slow-paced affair in an increasingly fast-paced world. The critic, Clive James, had it chess with balls, and he was quite right. Snooker blends depth with the dynamism of the best elite-level sport. It sprang from billiards, a game that can be traced back at least to the 16th century, an offshoot of lawn sports like skittles and croquet. Creation of indoor tables may have been an effort to replicate outdoor games in rainproof conditions for billiards and so by extension, for snooker, we have the unpredictable weather of northern Europe to thank the reason for the iconic green table though so it looks like a patch of grass for centuries. billiards remained popular both England and France, cropping up in the works of Edmund Spencer and William Shakespeare, and beloved by historical figures from Mary Queen of Scots to Louis XI. Snooker itself, though, began in the clubhouses of the Victorian Raj. off duty British officers would amuse themselves round the billiard table with a range of gambling games. There was life pool. There was black pool. There was a game called Pyramids, which happened to involve a familiar sounding triangle of fifteen reds. It was Colonel Sir Neville Chamberlain who claimed, in the 1870s, to have upgraded these by adding other coloured pools to the mix. Initially a yellow, green, and black were brought in. The brown and blue came later. The new formula was immediately popular. All it needed was a name. For some time, first-year cadets had been referred to as new, soon anglicised snooks, or alternatively, snookers. At the end of his life, Chamberlain explained how snooker, once a teasing term for army newbies, ended up as the name for the game he had invented. One of our party failed to hole a coloured ball, which was close to a corner pocket. I called out to him, why, you're a regular snooker. I had to explain to the company the definition of the word, and to soothe the feelings of the culprit, I added, we were all, so to speak, snookers at the game. So it would be very appropriate to call the game snooker. The suggestion was adopted with enthusiasm, and the game has been called snooker ever since. By the end of the century, it had been brought to England. The story of snooker had begun. It remained obscure, though, for many years eclipsed by Billiard's, which was seen as the more respectable choice. and no one was able seriously to compete with Joe Davis, the four-time Billiard's champion and snookering colossus, who powered over everyone else in the game's early decades, winning the initial 1927 World Championship and then triumphing another 14 times before retiring undefeated. By the 1960s, Nuka was in the doldrums. The games management was chaotic, only a small pool of professionals played, competition was so sparse that for several years the World Championship switched to a challenge format between just two players. As Snooker struggled for its life, the BBC were looking for ways that they might promote the new technology of colour television. The controller of BBC2, a certain David Attenborough, realised that Snooker, with colour at its core, would be ideal. There was little belief that this humble staple of working men's clubs would spark much excitement but it was a low-risk, low-budget option. The format would be simple, a single frame between two professionals in a compact half-hour slot. The first programme went out on 23rd of July 1969. It was the week of the moon landings. Many at the BBC presumed pop-back would fade without a trace. Despite low expectations, though, the first episode fared quite well. Something was afoot. black, it seemed, might be something more than a gimmicky vehicle for colour TV. It might even be a hit. And a hit it certainly was. The rise of snooker's popularity was dizzying. In the early 80s, snooker had become the nation's number one sport players were household names. At the pinnacle was Steve Davis, the ultra-dedicated robotic potting machine who ruled the decade with ruthless authority. Intimidated by his aura of mournful concentration, other players would just collapse. Against Davis, it was difficult to believe. It was like playing against God himself became the highest-paid sportsperson in Britain and was on TV more often than anyone else beside newscasters. Round him was a circle of more rebellious figures, brought the game plenty of spice and edge. Chiselled snookering hunk, Tony Knowles lit up the tabloids with a string of sex scandals. Unpredictable hard-drinking genius, Alex Higgins was Snooker's most charismatic force, electrifying audiences with bursts of hot headed brilliance. Wild mavericks like Jimmy White and Kurt Stevens paraded around romping young rock stars.
2: Now that's the first part of, of uh, Bill's story, and he'll be back next week with the conclusion of uh, the history of Snooker. We've had a couple of articles in recent Outlook programmes on words and wordsmiths, but uh, in this article, Elaine goes further and talks about etymology, the study of words and their meaning. This is from an article in People's Friend by Yvonne McKenzie, in conversation with the etymologist Paul Anthony Jones.
6: Do you want to build a snowman? Here's something to mull over while you're doing so. When you start rolling a snowball so that it gradually grows bigger, that ball of snow is called a hodmodod. According to the English dialect dictionary, it's a figurative use of an old word for a spiral-shaped snail shell. To warm up afterwards, you may form an ingle ring, which describes a circle of friends around a fire. Paul Anthony Jones uncovers lots of fascinating words like this, along with facts and oddities in the English language, and shares them in his new book, Why Is This a Question? Paul has been described as a linguistic phenomenon, but where did his passion for words come from? When I was seven or eight years old, my grandparents gave me a dictionary for Christmas, "'and I was instantly hooked,' he explains. "'I sat and read it cover to cover, like you would a novel. "'It seemed like the answer to everything you could possibly want to know was inside, "'and that well and truly caught my imagination. "'From there, I took that love of words to college and university, "'and have now somehow ended up sharing that with everyone as my career.' He gives fascinating insights into the history of our alphabet too. Our zigzagging letters M and N, for instance, look the way they do because they come from hieroglyphs representing waves and a snake, he says. Our letter O was once an image of an eye. And when you write a letter A, you're actually drawing a 5,000 year old picture of an ox's head. The point at the top of the triangle is its snout and the two struts below were originally its horns. As an etymologist, I'm used to writing about the history of words and our language. In my book, there's a chapter explaining why our alphabet is in ABC order. But some of the other chapters are more scientific, and they were a real challenge. There is a chapter on how reading works, he continues, which explains precisely what is going on in your eyes and your brain as you scan a line of text like this one. It took a lot of research, and I called on a really good friend of mine who's a biochemist who helped me to decode some of the more puzzling biological data. All told, I think it took about two and a half years to bring the book together. The more I was reading and researching and finding out, the more fascinated I was becoming with what I was discovering. So I hope that comes across in my book. Does Paul have any words that are particular favourites? I get asked that question quite often, and I think I give a different answer every time. I really love the word ataraxy, which describes a state of absolute calm and peace of mind. I love eulenlock too. That's an owl hole, or one of the little openings high up on the walls of a barn to let birds in to catch mice. But there's a big group of words I love that describe in remarkable precision where something is located, like Interlacustrine between two lakes, transpontine, on the other side of a bridge, or cismontaine, located on this side of a mountain. Any one of those is a good candidate for my favourite, Paul says. Language is such an interesting subject, but it sometimes suffers from being kept behind closed doors a little. The only time you ever hear about the really interesting linguistic topics is in the classrooms and lecture halls. I see it as my job to repackage that kind of information in such a way that no one is alienated or patronised. If I'd done that in my book, I'd be very happy, says Paul. When it comes to words that sum up winter, our language has us well and truly covered. Or as you might say, mobbled. If you're mubbled, then you're swathed or wrapped up in warm clothes or covers. It's a word dating back to the early 1600s, but its earlier origins are murky. One theory is that it's some kind of dialect corruption, of muffle, in the sense of having thick clothes wrapped around your face or mouth. Or perhaps it comes from mob, a word from the 17th century for a shabbily attired lady. A fox's cough. If you're unlucky enough to fall ill over the winter months, you might find yourself dealing with a fox's cough. That's a dry, ticklish, near-constant barking cough that refuses to clear up. So-called because a fox's bark is so raucously similar in sound. A meldrop. Adapted into English from Scandinavia, a meldrop was originally a drop of foam at an exerted horse's mouth. With that meaning in mind, it probably derives from mel, the Norse word for a horse's bit. In the 1500s and 1600s, the meldrop began to be used more loosely and according to a number of 19th century dictionaries is now a long-lost name for a drip that forms on the end of a cold person's nose and a droplet at the tip of a melting icicle. Snowbones A word dating from the mid-19th century. Snowbones are the long white lines of untouched snow left on the sides of a road or path, or between the churned-up tracks of vehicles. And finally, my favourite, apricity. Apricity is derived from a Latin word meaning to bask in the warmth of the sun on an otherwise cold winter's day. So I wish you all that you will find a moment of apricity in the next few weeks, while we wait for the spring to arrive and make a very welcome return.
2: A fascinating and ever-evolving subject, with new words being introduced each year and others falling out of use, of course. Words are certainly something Cynthia Townsend has a love for with all the short stories she has written, and another of which, Dreams Like a Queen, Ali is now going to read.
10: For as long as she could remember, Saffy always had a vivid imagination. Even as a child, she would have numerous imaginary friends who were the cause of all sorts of trouble. It wasn't me, Saffy would say. It was Windy. Windy did it. Windy was one of several imaginary friends that Saffy would call upon to get her out of mischief from time to time. As Saffy got older, she forgot her childhood gang and made new, real friends, and was very popular in whatever situation she found herself in. She was smart, had an answer for everything, and was liked by both men and women. She was a good friend, listener, and resident joke-teller. Whenever there was a crowd of people gathered, having a good laugh, you could be sure that Saffy would be at the centre of it all. At home, Saffy lived by herself in a one-bedroom flat above a shop. The shop had long opening hours, and of course it was very noisy, but it was all she could afford and so to block out the noise, every night she would listen to talking history books until she fell asleep. Every morning, though, Safi would wake up with an extremely sore neck. It was a nagging pain that had been causing her a few problems, and she didn't really know why. It was annoying, but it soon went after she'd had a shower, and then it was forgotten, until the next day, and the cycle started all over again. It was really odd. And over the coming weeks, other things began happening as well that she really couldn't explain. She started speaking French, a language that she'd only had a limited knowledge of, but now she was able to talk like a native. She could do intricate embroidery, again, something that she wasn't able to do before. And she used the local library to feed her obsession with Latin, Latin verse and text. What on earth was going on? Safi spoke to her pals at work, who all thought it was extremely amusing, and decided that it must be another one of her tall tales. OK, Saffy, said one of them, what's the punchline? There's no punchline. These things are genuinely happening to me, and I don't know why. After a long and tiring day at work, she had a soak in the bath and started to doze off, as the hot water and the lovely smell of the bubble bath lulled her into a tranquil state.
5: She soon woke up
10: and dried herself off and put on her favourite pyjamas and jumped into bed. There was a lot of activity going on in the shop below and so out came her trusty talking history books and she once again immersed herself into the world of the Tudor court. In no time at all she was fast asleep. But this was like no other sleep. She actually felt wide awake and was transported into the court of His Majesty King Henry VIII. She felt like she was actually there, in the court itself. She was wearing a beautiful ball gown, green velvet, plush green velvet with gold trim. She felt really good. And this is how her dreams were for a few weeks. Always transported to the Tudor court, surrounded by ladies and waitings and courtiers who sang French and embroidered exquisite patterns on big frames and read prayers and other texts in Latin, it got to the stage where Safi literally couldn't wait to go to bed and go back to the historic court where she was the centre of attention. People used to crowd around her. They hung on her every word. She had witty answers to everything and she was loved by both men and women alike. She was Popular in the court of King Henry VIII. Then one night, the dream wasn't as colourful anymore. Her clothes were black and plain she found herself in a dark, bricked room. Gone were the embroidering frames, the courtiers, the laughter and fun, and instead there was a simple wooden bed, a basic altar with a brass cross, and a thick wooden door, which was locked. Saffy didn't like this dream anymore. She wanted to wake up, but she couldn't. She really felt cold and shivery, as if she knew something sinister was going to happen, but she didn't know what. Suddenly she heard a key in the lock and the large wooden door creaked open. Standing in the doorway was a priest and two sobbing women behind him, who she recognised as being her ladies-in-waiting. They were carrying a cloak and a small white cap. The priest started praying in Latin and put his hand on her head, while the two women put the thick black woolen cloak around her and tied up the massive chestnut brown hair and put it in the white cap. I don't want to be in this dream any more, kept telling herself. Wake up, wake up, wake up! But she couldn't. She was stuck in this nightmare of a dream and couldn't get out of it. Two prison guards then turned up. The priest beckoned Safi to follow him, the willing women following behind. She was led down a dark passage. The only light came from the cracks in the wall where Dawn's light was peeping through. A few moments later, she found herself outside and walking down a wooden staircase being led to a courtyard. Then everything else played out just like the historical tape that she'd been listening to. Her cloak was taken away from her. She placed her head on a wooden block and the executioner stood with his sword poised. Safi
6: screamed, no, wake up, wake up, wake up.
10: And in the split second that the sword touched the neck, she woke up out of her historical nightmare. In her nighttime adventures, she'd been living the life and death of Queen Anne Boleyn. It suddenly all became clear and the pain in her neck had now gone. She had been dreaming like a queen and she was so relieved that it was now all over. The next day, Safi began to look for a new quieter places to live, and vowed never again to fall asleep, listening to anything that would fuel her vivid imagination ever again.
2: From a story with a queen theme to a real-life food fit for a king, King Charles has chosen a coronation omelette to mark his ascension to the throne, whereas the late Queen Elizabeth had coronation chicken for her ascension. Cassia Delgado claims to be the worst cook, and Sue recounts Cassia's attempt to make her far from upper crust coronation
6: omelette. I quite like quiche. It can make for a pleasantish lunch, and I'm sure I've had some memorable quiches in my life, even if they don't spring to mind in this instant. But the announcement that this eggy pie is taking pride of place as the official dish of King Charles III's coronation is a bit of a letdown. I feel deep in my bones that whatever one's view on the royal family, quiche isn't very regal or suitable for ushering in a new monarchic era. But then, the King and Camilla, the Queen Consort, have personally chosen the dish in conjunction with the Royal Chef, Mark Flanagan, because it's a good sharing dish, can be served hot or cold, suits a variety of dietary requirements, and is not too complicated or expensive. I'm ecstatic to hear this, because when I made the Platinum Jubilee trifle, I spent over £63 in four different shops, had to deliver myself a bottle of emergency amaretto, as there was none in any shops within five miles, and I was tearful and shaky by the time I'd finished the pudding. Charles and Camilla must have taken my distress into account. The Royal Family's website describes the coronation dish as A deep quiche with a crisp, light pastry case and delicate flavours of spinach, broad beans and fresh tarragon. Eat hot or cold with a green salad and boiled new potatoes. Perfect for a coronation big lunch. That does sound jolly and sociable. Maybe it's the perfect choice for our times. So... Given we're still eating coronation chicken 70 years after the last coronation, I decide it's important to try making this quiche in case it's still part of our culinary landscape in 2092. Also, I need something for my lunch, so this kills two birds with one stone. To make it, I need salt, plain flour, milk, butter and lard for the shortcrust pastry then tarragon, spinach, broad beans, double cream, cheese and eggs for the filling. The ingredients come to £14.50, which is reasonable, considering I can use the rest of the eggs, flour, butter and cheese for other meals. I've not made pastry before and I'm apprehensive, but there are so few ingredients that I begin to feel self-belief. I sift the salt and flour into a bowl with the lard and butter and milk bashing it together in the hope of forming a dough. The problem is it's disturbingly wet and floppy and doesn't seem to be combining with the flour. It's difficult to imagine shaping this milky soup. I check the recipe and realise I've put in 125 mils of milk and it's only meant to be two tablespoons of milk. The hundred and twenty-five mils of milk was for the filling. Later on I've massively jumped the gun, but decide to just add more flour to balance it all back out. The proportions are a bit off now, but I keep adding flour to the mixture until it's more solid once it's spent some time in the fridge I roll out the dough trying to make it into a circle but it's too stubborn to adhere to any real shape I manage to force it into the baking tin and then set out to blind bake it before I do this I text my younger brother who is an extremely good baker to ask what baking beans are because I've already got broad beans Apparently, there to weigh down the pastry so it doesn't puff up. But since I don't have this baking tool, I decide to try rice instead. Just in time, he texts again, warning me to put the rice on parchment so I don't end up with a quiche full of raw rice. Close call there. Eh? The blind baked pastry, on emerging from the oven, looks very lumpy and patchy but i figure that it'll have another chance to correct itself when it goes back in properly with the filling i manage to heat up the beans and the spinach just as the recipe says with no issues and then beat together milk cream eggs herbs and seasoning i dump it all onto my anemic looking pastry the coronation quiche goes into the oven for 25 minutes and i sit nervously digging dough out of my nails and mopping the floor and chairs onto which the milky dough mixture escaped earlier. I have a cup of tea, and hope that very soon the golden, crusty dream the palace has promised me is taking shape. After half an hour, I take out the quiche as instructed, and cut into it. It is, unfortunately, completely liquid. Back in the oven. Twenty more minutes still liquid. What's worrying me now is that the beans are starting to get intensely crispy on top while the rest of the quiche remains uncooked. I put it back in the oven again and decide that if the beans have to burn for the quiche mixture to become a solid then so be it. An hour later the quiche is smelling good in the oven. The aroma of tarragon, cheddar and flour mingling in the air makes me feel happy, as long as I also ignore the smell of burning beans. The quiche is looking more solid, if not completely. I take it out and cut a slice, well a lump really, and put it onto a plate and take it to my boyfriend. He looks uncertain but tries a small bite then immediately a bigger bite my heart leaps maybe although it looks bad it tastes nice it's like a wet omelette he says but it's not bad well it's not that bad it does kind of taste like food i might see what else there is for lunch though I can imagine that this quiche, made by someone else, could make for a decent coronation lunch. Perhaps there will be people across the land making unforgettable tarragon and spinach quiches, which will be remembered in seventy years' time. I would, however, rather forget all about this one. Instead, I'm creating my own bespoke coronation dish, which I call Ordering a pizza.
2: With the coronation of King Charles at the end of next week, you'll need to hurry, of course, if you want to make uh, your own coronation omelette before all the ingredients get sold off the supermarket shelves. Now, to end this programme, a bit of observation and retrospective in a poem by William Wordsworth upon Westminster Bridge, which I recorded earlier. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth like a garment where the beauty of the morning, silent, bare, ships, towers, domes, theatres and temples lie open to the fields and to the sky, all bright and glistening in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully sleep in his first splendor valley, rock or hill, Ne'er saw I, never felt, a calm so deep. The river glideth at its own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. Now that brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook, so it's goodbye from the Outlook team, and from me, Nigel Hewin, until next week.